0: Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen on select Saturdays in March. Enjoy a film that captures the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art, including Metropolis, Days of Heaven, and Marie Antoinette at NortonSimon.org.
1: Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon-Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Tickets at pasadenaplayhouse.org.
2: It's film week on l a a eighty nine point three i'm larry mantle that song to the first film that we're going to review this week with critics Peter Rayner of the Christian Science Monitor and Wade Major of Synagogues.com The film is the documentary The Greatest Night in Pop. It takes us back to January 25th, 1985 when that recording you just heard was made. Dozens of the biggest names in music convening at a Los Angeles studio to record that fundraising song. The documentary The Greatest Night in Pop is streaming on Netflix starting next Thursday, and Wade Begins. Wade, what did you think of the doc?
0: It's terrific. And uh, again, I am biased because I remember when these songs came out. It uh, It came right on the heels of Bob Geldof putting together Do They Know It's Christmas with all the British talent, right? So this was the American answer to that. And uh, Lionel Richie still with us, thank goodness, because he co-wrote the song with Michael Jackson. So he walks us through the entire process of how the song came together and how it was butted up to the American Music Awards, which he was also hosting, where he also won a ton of awards, and the incredible stress and chaos of herding all of this talent into one room at one time, and the song is so good and so memorable and so extraordinary that, that you know we don't, we we take it for granted. Oh, you bring a bunch of professionals in a room and it happens. No, they had to decide who's going to do the solos and who and and there's even a walkout and I won't spoil it for anybody but there is a legendary talent who just said, I'm done with this and, really? and left. And, and they kind of laugh about it in hindsight because it really was incredibly tense. But the, the high point for me was hearing the engineer talk about, and they have footage of it, when Michael Jackson laid down some of his initial tracks. And, and you see it and you hear it, and he talks about just how extraordinary it was to hear that voice in the studio. And you have the same reaction watching this film. One of the things
2: I love about the recording is the the solos in this song, you hear how they're really pushing themselves because yeah, they're, yeah. in a sense, competing against their peers. And so you hear some of the great vocal lines that these artists have done in this song. Peter, what did you think of The Greatest Night in Pop?
3: Yeah, it's it's, it's terrific. Um, uh, you know, the song for me is one of the great earworms. You know? <laughs> I think uh, it was designed to be there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, But what's interesting is how, you know, they talk about the process of how the song was created and how everything was put together, and, and all these great artists in, in, in the single studio, with you know, Quincy Jones, who coordinated the whole thing, had a sign over the entryway, so, you know, check your ego at the door. Right. Um, but but all of the stuff that that they talk about we actually see footage of we see Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, you know, working out a collaboration. We see all the artists, you know, rehearsing their 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 one, you know, lyric, and 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 it, it's almost as if they knew there was going to be a film eventually made of this, and they yeah. film. They have incredible amount of footage.
0: It's astonishing we haven't seen it
3: yet. That it's it has taken all these decades for us yeah. to finally see yeah. all this footage. It's I amazing. have seen
2: some clips over the years, yeah. but but nothing yeah. that gives you the no, full scope. No, it's,
3: it's all together. But the funny thing is, that they show you all of different artists who, who are very nervous in some cases like Huey Lewis and Cindy Lauper, you know, I mean, because they know they really got to knock it out of the park, you know, and then they get to Bob Dylan, who isn't, doesn't quite fit in, you know, yeah. and he's trying to do, you know, just, and we did, you and me, you know, <laughs> it's very funny, you know, and Springsteen, who is among the, the, the people who they interview contemporarily, um, uh, is is really sharp about the whole process and what happened and what was good and bad and and all the ins and outs uh he's really sort of your your spirit guide to to the sanity of what was going on there <laughs>
2: It it sounds so entertaining. It is, yeah. Uh, we're talking about the documentary, The Greatest Night in Pop. We are the world's recording at the historic A&M, now Henson Studios in Hollywood. The film is unrated. It starts streaming on Netflix next Thursday, January 29th. Sometimes I think about dying is a uh, romantic comedic drama starring Daisy Ridley and Dave Marredge. Uh, the film is directed by Rachel Lambert and written by Stephanie Abel Horowitz, Kevin Armento, and Katie Wright Mead. Peter, what do you think of Sometimes I Think About Dying?
3: Uh, it's a terrible title for a terrific movie. <laughs> you know, I don't know that you could recommend this movie, but just based on its title, Uh it says, ah, I think I have other plans tonight. Um, but it's, it's, it's a really, you know, it's it, it, Daisy Ridley, who's a wonderful actress, who's primarily known for Star Wars, but you know, hasn't had much of a great career since then with these movies that barely get released. But this one was a, a Sundance, pardon the expression, uh, fave last year. And, um, it's, she plays this kind of very mousy Uh, you know, cubicle worker in Washington state or Oregon coast that, uh, you know, basically goes home and eats cottage cheese and does Sudoku and talks to her mother on the phone (laughs) and, you know, dresses in neutral colors. And and she sort of wants it this way, but she's, she's very neutral person. And, but, but the, the office that she works in, it's never quite clear what her job is. Um, This film has some of the best at, you know, office, workplace uh, uh, atmosphere I've ever seen in a film. It's so accurate to, you know, people coming in and pouring the coffee and small talk. And it's just, it's, it's very sharply observed. And she's sort of brought out of her shell a bit by um, the character played by Dave Marish, who's, who's a wonderful comic actor, I gather, and, you know, he's a stand-up comic, uh, sometimes, and, and, and the, the relationship that they have is, is quite touching and, and never forced, never sentimental. I mean, the whole movie really has, has a, a, a wonderful, and I'll just say one more thing, that if you describe this film to people, they'll say, oh, that sounds really boring. The trick is, Stanley Kaufman once wrote a very interesting review of a Russian film. He said, the trick to making... Uh, if you're going to show boring stuff on screen, the trick to not making it boring for the audience is to make the audience feel like if I too were in that situation, I would be bored, as opposed to boring that's the funny. audience. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's what this film does.
2: We're talking about sometimes I think about dying, wait.
3: So it, it is structured
0: very much as a romantic comedy: boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. There's nothing. There's nothing uh, revolutionary about that, and it is also part of that subset, that subgenre of misfit romantic. Comedies, which kind of begins in 1962 with Frank and Eleanor Perry's David and Lisa, includes things like Punch Drunk Love. And and there is an an innate charm to that 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 I think is done better here than I've seen it done in years. Because when you do them, you have to make the misfits real. You can't mock their social anxiety. You can't make them the butt of the joke. You have to to make their very unique insular romance something credible. You have to make it appealing and affectionate. You have to bring the audience into their anxiety. And that's what what is done so incredibly well here. Rachel Lambert does an amazing thing. She takes a play, that is very theatrical, and she expands it in an incredibly cinematic way, but not on a grand canvas. Like Peter said, you feel the atmosphere of The Office, I mean, the mundane chit-chat, but you don't care about it because you're so wrapped up in these characters. It's beautifully done.
2: Sometimes I think about Dying's rated PG-13, starring Daisy Ridley and Dave Marege. You can see it in a one-week run at AMC's The Grove 14 before it expands to select theaters next Friday the 2nd. The Tunisian drama Under the Fig Trees is Tunisia's uh, entry for Academy Award consideration. The film's in Arabic, uh, and it's directed by Erej Sahiri. What did you think, Peter, about Under the Fig Trees?
3: Uh, it's a terrific movie. It's um, It takes place in one day uh, in a, um, a fig tree orchard uh, in the summer, and uh, the people who are working there are cross-section of, you know, young, old uh, men, women, young men, young women. Uh, there's a kind of uh, belligerent boss uh, who, who, who's making sure that the figs are ripe and that nobody's stealing stuff. And, uh, it, I mean, it's all... I mean, it's it's sort of like a Tunisian Altman movie <laughs> in a way. I mean, you've got this cross section of people, and 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 she, the director moves back and forth between you know this this young couple, this this young girl who had a crush on this kid when he was seven, and then he moved away, and now he's back picking, you know, figs with her, and he is not she's still smitten, and, and he's kind of trying to act aloof, and there's all these wonderful stories. There's older ladies, you know, some of them are quite religious, some of them are, you know, very gossipy, uh, there's all sorts of sexual politics going on. Uh, I mean, it, it just moves very smoothly uh, throughout this community, and, and really gives you, without fully being aware of it, uh, in a way, uh, a, a, a real depth of feeling as to, you know, how these people, you know, work and and, and the working conditions. And it's really, uh, it's a marvelous little movie.
2: Under the Fig
3: Trees from
2: Tunisia and the director, Areej Sahiri, co-wrote the screenplay as well. It's unrated. It's available for viewing on demand. Also this week on Film Week, Behind the Haystacks, which is Greece's official submission for Best International Oscar. The film is written and directed by uh, Asimina uh, Proretrou. What did you think, Wade, of Behind the Haystacks?
0: Yeah, if you don't find it under the fig trees, you'll find it Behind the Haystacks. Uh, (laughs) The yum-yum tree. (laughs) Also released by Film Movement, who seems to love movies with prepositional phrases. Behind the Haystacks is actually quite a good film, and it doesn't feel like a Greek film. It feels more like, almost like a Dardenne Brothers film. It has that that, uh, very urgent kind of slice of life quality that you mostly find in French and Belgian cinema, Francophile cinema. Um, um, It's about a guy, a fisherman, a Greek fisherman, has a very tough life, goes across the Macedonian border to sell his fish and and, uh, he's just not keeping up. He's getting buried in debt. And so he decides to become a migrant smuggler, and that has a whole cascading series of, of uh, ramifications for him and his wife and their daughter, and, all, you know, you wrap all of this uh, this generational struggle up in it. And it's it's really quite an interesting tale, uh, and it's a slow burn. It really it, it kind of worms its way under your skin, but it, it really pays off br- very bravely by the end.
2: We're talking about the Greek movie Behind the Haystacks. Peter, quick thought on this. Uh,
3: it's very good. It's, it's structured... as. As a sort of from three separate characters' points of view, it's not a Rashomon kind of thing because the, the stories all interlink in the same way. But but you you do get a sense of. of you know, really contrasting viewpoints, and uh, it also, I think, points up a lot of the xenophobia in this community, and and the the reaction to the the Muslim immigrants. You know, there's the the, the local priest doesn't want any outreach for the immigrants, um, and the the wife of one of the characters is very religious and and is torn between you know, wanting to help and, and wanting to abide by her husband and her pre- pre- uh, you know, precepts. Uh, there's a lot going on in this movie. It reminded me of some way of the Romanian movie RMN. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it's, it's, it's quite strong.
2: Behind the Haystacks is Unrated. It's streaming on Film Movement Plus. The South Korean action-adventure Badland Hunters is directed by Hyom Myung Hing. The film is Unrated. Peter.
3: Well, if you saw um, any of the uh, Concrete Utopia, which was the uh, South Korean movie... That it, this is sort of a sequel to that. Uh, there's been this apocalyptic earthquake, and people are, you know, roaming the world trying to find out, you know, where to live, where to eat, what to drink. And there's this one high-rise that remains with this crazy doctor who seems like he's out of poor things, uh, who, um, you know, is trying to to uh, create a new race in a sense. And uh, it it it's kind of crazy. It's kind of uh, exciting and kind of uh, disposable. But but I think you know if you if you like Concrete Utopia, this film sort of extends the, uh, the madness of that film.
2: Uh, Batland Hunters, unrated, and it's streaming on Netflix. Uh, the Underdogs uh, stars Snoop Dogg and Tika Sumpter, Mike Epps, and George Lopez. Wade, what do you think of The Underdogs?
0: I wanted to like it so much because I like Snoop. I mean, he's, you know, he's a Laker fan. He's an L.A. local. He's a legend. And uh, I this is just so terrible. I, I really disliked the first half of it. I thought it was just so amateurish and, and shameless. I mean, it's basically The Mighty Ducks with Snoop as a washed up football receiver who, you know, has to now coach this this kid this kind of ragtag kids team. But it owns that Mighty Ducks analogy cuz he's literally told at one point in the film, "Hey, this is just like the Mighty Ducks." And you kind of roll your eyes. And then by the end you realize Snoop's just using this movie as a plug for his football league. So the whole thing is really just very mercenary, and it's not well done, and uh, I, I I, just found it kind of painful, but I think I gave up in the second half and just kind of went with it because it was just too much to resist.
2: The Underdog, starring Snoop Dogg, directed by Charles Stone III, written by Danny Siegel and Isaac Seamus. It's rated R. The Underdogs is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Coming up, we'll talk about Norman Jewison, the great director who died last Saturday uh, in his late 90s but left behind an extraordinary film legacy. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Much more to come.
0: Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at NortonSimon.org.
1: Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderón Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org.
2: It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Coming up later on the program, we'll talk with all three of the directors of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Their film, of course, Oscar-nominated for Best Animated Feature. Justin K. Thompson, Kemp Powers, and Joaquim Dos Santos will all be with us in studio talking about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. But we're so pleased to have with us, just back from Park City and the Sundance Film Festival, Justin Chang, Los Angeles Times film critic, Who share with us some of his favorites at the festival this year? Justin, thanks so much. Please start us out with *Presence*, uh, which is a horror thriller thriller directed by Steven Soderbergh.
4: Yeah, thanks, Larry. Uh, You know Steven Soderbergh, who won the top prize at Sundance 35 years ago for *Sex Lies and Videotape*, and even though with all his Hollywood success, he's always been still in the vanguard of independent filmmaking. Presence is a ghost story that stars Lucy Liu and Chris Sullivan as a married couple who've just moved with their two teenage children into a house that turns out to be haunted. Uh, So so far, so normal, or or paranormal, rather. What's ingenious about the movie, and this is not a spoiler, is that it's shot entirely from the ghost's perspective. (laughs) Um, I won't say more than that, except that, as you'd expect from Soderbergh, the direction and the camera work are ingenious, um, extraordinarily clever. And the movie is both spooky, darkly funny, and, and in the end, it's quite devastating, too.
2: Mm. We're talking about the horror-thriller presence from Steven Soderbergh. David Kep wrote the screenplay, Love Lies Bleeding, a romantic drama starring Kristen Stewart. Rose Glass directed it and co-wrote it, Justin.
4: Yeah, this is a very different movie from Rose Glass's um, horror movie, St. Maude. And I'll just say, if you see only one ultra-violent lesbian bodybuilder noir this year, you should make it this one. This would one. be it,
2: okay. <laughs> this would be it. In that huge genre of films, yes.
4: <laughs> the, the year is early, though. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> um, let's let's just say the movie introduces Kristen Stewart unclogging a toilet and only gets nastier from there. Um, it also stars a terrific Katie O'Brien as the aforementioned bodybuilder with whom Kristen Stewart falls in love which sets off this chain of violence and revenge, some of which just has to be seen to be believed. Um, this was in the festival's midnight section. It was a big hit there. It was really fun seeing it with a crowd. Um, extremely tense and stylish and atmospheric in a way that will remind a lot of people of Drive, um, with the Ryan Gosling movie from years ago. So, um, Mm. it's very darkly funny. And
2: intense. Love Lies Bleeding from director and writer Rose Glass. Kristen Stewart stars A Real Pain, a comedic drama starring Kieran Culkin and Jesse Eisenberg. Eisenberg wrote and directed A Real Pain.
4: Yeah, so Eisenberg and Culkin play bickering cousins on holiday in Poland, Um, and Eisenberg in this case is sort of the calm, level-headed, straight man, while Culkin, in his first movie role post his succession Emmy win, uh, is the gregarious but really volatile, uh, hot-headed one who often gets them in trouble. And so it's a deceptively light-hearted buddy comedy, but with quite a bit of depth to it, Um, and I think it's a real advance for Eisenberg as a writer-director after his previous film, When You Finished, Saving the World. It's also a personal story rooted in some of his experience, and both actors are terrific, and the movie becomes kind of a meditation on pain, as the title suggests, and sort of the difference between personal pain and world historical pain as embodied by the many Holocaust memorials um, that the two characters and their fellow tourists are visiting. Um, So yeah, it's a really entertaining movie, a lot of heart and a lot on its mind as well.
2: A Real Pain, starring Kieran Culkin, Jesse Eisenberg. A Different Man, a thriller starring Sebastian Stan and Renata Renzva, films written and directed by Aaron Schimberg. A uh, Different Man, Justin.
4: Yeah, A Different Man is a hilarious and unclassifiable blend of sort of dark comedy with science fiction, some Cronenbergian body horror. Sebastian Stan gives a remarkable performance as an actor who has neurofibromatosis um a facial condition that in the movie is healed through some experimental procedure um and it's about what happens and doesn't happen when he starts going through his life uh looking as handsome as sebastian Stan does um it should be said the movie features really terrific support from uh, renata reinza from the, who you will remember from the worst person in the world she was wonderful in that um and the, the real scenes dealer here though is adam pearson who an actor who actually does have neurofibromatosis Um, And he appeared in Under the Skin, uh, which could also be the title of this movie. Um, It's a very playful, almost meta comedy at times. um, Really fascinating, continually surprising. And uh, from uh, the writer-director Aaron Schimberg.
2: A different man. Black Box Diaries, a documentary uh, that's uh, directed by Shuri Ito. And it's her story as a journalist investigating her own sexual assault. Justin?
4: A really, a really hard-hitting film that sheds light on how, as underreported and under-prosecuted as sexual assault is all over the world, um, it's been especially awful in Japan. Uh, at one point in the movie, the statistic is floated that only perhaps around four percent of such incidents are reported, uh, you know, let alone prosecuted, and so. What's really commendable about Shiori Ito's um, film is that, and her experience, is that she herself is a journalist and a writer. She's writing a book alongside this investigation, and so it's her journalistic acumen and tenacity that empowers her to go public with her story. And so while the movie is fairly straightforward in following her investigation, her interviews with police officers, witnesses, and others as she seeks justice... Um, her efforts to do this, there's something, there's something really extraordinary about her seeing her courage in confronting her attacker and her naysayers in the media head-on.
2: We're talking about the documentary Black Box Diaries, all of these films being shown currently at the Sundance Film Festival. And our final film from Sundance, In the Summers, uh, a drama that's set in New Mexico, written and directed by Alessandra lacaraza samudio
4: Yeah, I walked into In the Summers knowing nothing about it, which is often the best way to see a movie, of course. And it's a kind of long-term coming-of-age movie about a single father played by the Puerto Rican musician uh, Rene Perez-Yoglar, who's better known as Residente, and the two kids who come to visit him each summer. And they're played by different actors over the course of the movie, which spans four different visits. And this is a movie that touches on parenting, alcoholism, neglect, queer identity, among other things, But what's really wonderful about In the Summers is it is not emphatically about any of those things. It's not an issue movie. It plays out with great subtlety and low-key realism that... By the end, Larry, I don't know if it was me being at Sundance and missing my own two daughters. <laughs> it just completely broke my heart. And wow. uh, I hope it'll be picked up and released sometime soon so that it can break everyone else's, too.
2: Oh, that's great. Yeah. In the summers is the film from writer-director Alessandra La Caraza samudio uh, And just in closing, Justin, we're pretty much out of time. But do you think we're going to get a chance to see all of these films, either in theaters or streaming?
4: Yes, I think so, and I'm terrible about having distributor information uh, right at hand. I know some of these movies do have distribution. You know, Neon actually bought presents the Soderbergh film out of uh, the festival, so okay. and that's one that you should definitely will definitely see in theaters, and it's a great audience movie. So I'm grateful that uh, that they picked that one up, and I hope the other ones, um, some of which do have distribution too, will be seen soon. So
2: Justin, thank yeah. you so much. Really appreciate you sharing what you saw and what most impressed you at the Sundance Film Festival.
4: Welcome home. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always, Larry.
2: Thank you so much. And you'll have a chance to see Justin on stage at our Film Week Academy Awards preview coming up Sunday, March 3rd at the Historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles. Justin, one of our 11 Film Week critics will be on stage there. Now, still with us, uh, Peter Raynor and Wade Major. We want to talk about director Norman Jewison who died at the age of 97 last Saturday. Peter, let me start with you and just what you think is his biggest Biggest filmic legacy.
3: Well, he, he was incredibly versatile. He did everything from Doris Day comedies to Fiddler on the Roof to In the Heat of the Night. Uh, I think his legacy was just that he was, he was so strong uh, in ways that really mattered, with subject matter that really mattered, uh, In the Heat of the Night. Uh, you know, is, is is a marvelous movie. Fiddler on the Roof is one of the best musicals ever made. You know, he he really was able to and Moonstruck, of course, is a, you know a great comedy. He did all of this stuff um, with with real panache, and he was a real actor's director. I mean, it, it's no accident that the performances in his films uh, are are always a cut above even what those actors normally did in in other films.
2: Rod Steiger in in the Heat of the Night. Oh, yeah,
3: I I um. You know, I wrote and, and, and co-produced a documentary on Poitiers for A&E, and, uh, and, and Jewison was a big part of that show. Uh, also, there was a Zeitgeist documentary on The Making of Fiddler on the Roof last year that really is almost like a tribute to, to Jewison. It's worth seeing just for—he for, was a marvelous raconteur. And, and he also—he uh, started what was, in effect, the Canadian version of the American Film Institute— uh, you know, he was very active in, in promoting young filmmakers and, in, in you know, film culture, both in Canada and in America, in Hollywood and England. Uh, you know, and I have to say, you know, personally, he was just a marvelous guy. He was just, you know, the the, the old adage that, you know, really nice guys don't make good movies mm-hmm. is not true in his no. case. Uh, I mean, he really, and I think it's because he was so perceptive about human uh, uh Uh, emotion, you know, about human behavior, and that translated into the way he directed actors and the way they came across, it's, it's something very authentic about his people. And, you know, so I think, uh, and even, you know, the first film that he considered his own first film, even though it wasn't, The Cincinnati Kid, which he took over yeah. from Sam Peckinpah, who was fired. I mean, that's a marvelous movie, you know, with, with Edward Very G. Robinson. Funny. And, you know, I mean, he worked well with Thomas Crown Affair is yeah. just, you know, a blissful romance uh, thriller spy, you know, whatever you want to call it is, is great. The
2: Russians are coming. Yeah. The Russians
3: are coming is hilarious. You know, I mean, Alan Arkin, even Saint, all those people in those films. You know, there's a whole, you know, pageant of wonderful performances by wonderful actors in his films.
2: Yeah, Wade, your your thoughts of, of Norman
3: Jewison? L- the, literally the last of a particular breed. And we could also
0: throw Sidney Lumet and Sidney Pollock in there. They were, they were the last of a breed of directors who could do anything, any genre, any type of film, and bring uh, an artist's veneer to it, they could take the, the silliest of scripts or the, the most mundane of dramas and make it artful. And I spent an evening with Norman Jewison um, at a Skirball event, part of uh, AFI Onscreen, Cinema's Legacy series, about 20-some years ago. And it was amazing. I mean, he was such a genteel, kind, um, more interested in me for some reason than I was interested in him. And I think that speaks to the kind of filmmaker that he was. He was observational. He loved people. And we forget, he produced and directed The Judy Garland Show on television. And if you can get hold of the DVDs of that, his audio commentaries are astonishing. astonishing. I, I'm
2: glad you mentioned live television yeah. because he and I think this true of Lumet also, didn't they yes, get a lot of live their experience television. doing that? Absolutely a right. whole generation. Yeah. John yeah.
3: Frankenheimer, there were a whole yes. bunch of directors like that. You know, but Jewison worked with you know Sinatra with all, all the the great music people. Also, I mean, his socially conscious films, you know, The Soldier Story, uh, In the Heat of the Night, he did... Um, Hurricane?
2: Yeah, about the Reuben, Hurricane, Hurricane yeah. Hunter, Carter. yeah, I mean, yeah. he
3: really, he was going to do Malcolm X, and then, you know, Spike Lee stepped in, so end of story. But, yeah. but I mean, that probably would have been, you know, great if he had done it as well. Uh, I mean, he was very, very aware of, of social aspects of film.
2: Norman Jewison, who died last Saturday at the age of 97. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3.
4: Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to L.A., a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow-up moment.
1: Vidiot's and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened.
4: In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is L.A. history. Listen to Revival House on How to L.A. wherever you listen to Podcasts.